Hi, I'm Dominic Patton. And I'm Anthony D'Alessandro. And this is the Deadline Podcast, Hero Nation. Today we'll be discussing Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow lawsuit against Disney, the changing of the guard at Doctor Who, and we'll be speaking with Suicide Squad and DC movie producer Peter Safran. Here we go. All right, well, let's be honest. We got to start off with the, the huge news. It turns out that Avengers like to go avenging and they like <laughs> to assemble a lot of dough. Scarlett Johansson is going after Disney. I mean, you, you clearly know she knows she's not coming back for any more Marvel movies because she's going after the House of Mouse. She's basically saying, you guys messed me over by putting Black Widow on Disney+. Plus. You affected my back-end comp- um, compensation, my points, all this sort of stuff. You have cost me money. They might be saying, I will quote, there is no merit whatsoever to this filing. The lawsuit is especially sad and distressing, which kind of sounds like Donald Trump, I might add. Um, (laughs) Disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Disney has fully complied with Ms. Johansson's contract. And furthermore, the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus with Premier Access has significantly enhanced her ability to earn additional compensation on top of, and here's where they out her. The $20 million she has received to date. Scarlett Johansson has not responded to Disney responding to her lawsuit, uh, which was filed today in Los Angeles Superior Court, written up by the amazing Ted Johnson with uh, some help from Anthony himself here. Um, This is messy. Messy, messy, messy. What's your take? This is going to be a game changer, and I hate that term, but I'm going to use it here. If she wins or gets a settlement out of them, this is coming fast and furious from everybody else, except fast and furious, because that was released actually in theaters. But what's your take? Do you do you think this drags on for a long time? I think Scarlet, no, Scarlet's, you know, spoiler alert, Black Widow's not coming back anymore. She's dead in the movies. And yeah. I think Scar- Scarlet realizing that she's dead with Disney, um, talked to her lawyers and decided that this was a Hail Mary worth taking. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just, this one's hard to tell. I, I do not think Disney are, Disney are notorious in lawsuits of not backing down. That was under the Iger regime. I don't think that's going to change now that King Bob is leaving to be replaced by another Bob. I think that um, Scarlett Johansson's got a lot of money and she's married to a very, very rich man by inheritance, Saturday Night Live's Colin Joust. Um, she don't have Disney money. They will lawyer, they will fight this. They will get big wig contract lawyers like Adam Levin and others, and they will fight this. Wow. Wow. So it, it's I mean, this is very different, but the the whole Gary Shandling thing with his with his manager, with Brad Gray, that went on forever and ever and then was quietly settled out of court. Yeah. I remember. I, if, if this is quietly settled, it's settled with like some fine print that everyone knew was there like, well, it does turn out we owe you another $5 million in action figure money or something, right? I mean, wow. I just, but I just think, you know, this is so close to the release. This is so close. This, you've written about, you know, the, the fallout and blast radius, kind of the same thing, but slightly different in this case, of, of the film, like box office drop-off, what was the Disney Plus effect, et, yeah. cetera, et cetera. The new reality, you know, people like Barry Diller are saying movie, movies are kind of dead, but they're going to change, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think she has either, she has made a Black Widow-like move. And this is, it's either going to have a superhero-style landing or it is just going to 
Thanos snap its way right out. I, I, I you know, look, I think she's going to lose. That's me. But I, but I think, I think Disney came back with such force in a statement, you know, and I've dealt with the, 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 the house of the mouse regime and they commonly are like, no comment, play right. it down. They were not, they, they took a while. They took a few hours to get back to Ted. And, and, and I know you were helping out on this story too, but that statement from them that I read out, not a lot of gray areas in that one. Wow. Wow. You know, what's interesting, Dwayne Johnson camp there. I'm under the understanding. They're not going to push back on jungle cruise. They were in alignment, uh, his seven bucks and his producers on this global, uh, you know, Disney Peabody theatrical day and date thing in response to the pandemic. And they're not going to fight. They're, they have no intention of fighting. Which- well, but, all, but also, I will say Scarlett's in a very unique position. Very unique. Her character is dead. And, and her character has kind of been dead. And then the movie, which is kind of fits in within the larger Marvel phase three landscape, you know, so it kind of all works there. Yeah, everybody comes back to life unless you see the body, but you kind of do see the body and there's a grave and every, like, you know, so, and, and Florence is definitely like the replacement for this. So I kind of feel like she was in the, I've got nothing left to lose here. And I feel like they took money out of my pocket, you know? And that's, people do that, you know? I get the sense this might have been going on for some time. I mean, when Scarlett went on the press tour, she was saying she had no plans to return as Natasha. I mean, even though she died, you could always do a sequel to this prequel, if you will. But um, like you said, it, it sounds like they've been fighting for a while. Yeah, yeah. I, I Look, there's clearly the bad blood here ran deep. Um, look, Downey left the Marvel universe, you know, spoiler alert, Tony Stark died in Endgame. Um, and I think that's kind of permanent. I mean, I get the feeling and, you know, Feige talks about these various stages and phases of the MCU. And I feel like there's movement throughout them. Um, but this one, I mean, this isn't burning a bridge. This is like, this is cluster bombing the bridge. This is pouring toxic stuff into the water. This is making sure none of the fish ever swim. Again. Like this is, you know, you, how do you walk back from this? You're basically saying you stole something from me and you lied to me. And they're saying, we didn't lie to you. In fact, we gave you a crap load of cash and we were gonna give you more. And we're not too sure how good we feel about that now. And everybody has been shamed in public. You don't drop someone's salary in your in your one paragraph response unless you have decided that you are putting a pox on them in their house. So someone's going to be a widow out of this one way or the other. <laughs> Flipping to talk you. about another strong female lead. We are losing the first female Doctor Who after three seasons. Very What's your take sad. on that? I mean, you, would, you know what? It's a... I, I, Jake Cantor, who wrote the, wrote the story for us uh, for, in Deadline, Jake nailed the thing. Like, this is, was one of the worst-kept secrets in television. Um, the pandemic obviously delayed uh, a new season of Doctor Who for a while. Um, Jodie Jody was always going to leave after three seasons, and so was 
Chris uh, Chibnail, you know, that is what Matt Smith did. That is what uh, Peter Capaldi did. Like, this is kind of a, there's an expected turnover now. There are some Doctor Who's, the Tom Bakers and what have you, who stayed around a little longer. That was not the plan here. They they said in their statement that they they made a three and done plan and they're keeping to it. They're, it's going to drag out a bit because they're going to have the new season and then there's these kind of specials that are going to come taking us forward. But um. She had a great run. She was a great Doctor Who. Look, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. I'll time lord the best of you. Um, she was great. And I, I just think, I mean, there's nothing I want to say, but she was amazing. I know tons of little girls who saw in, their, in themselves a reflection of her and reflection of the changes that her and Chris made in terms of the companions and all sorts of things that was very meaningful. Each Doctor Who sets their own tone. Jody said an amazing one. She's, a, she's an amazing person. She was a great actress. I am so going to miss her. Um, but the whole thing about Doctor Who is regeneration. You come back with a new doctor. But do you think that, so you don't think they'll go dormant? You'll just think they'll get a new showrunner? Oh, get a new oh yeah. They'll go beyond 2022. There's way too much money for AMC on this side of the, of the Atlantic and BBC on that side. Doctor Who's been around since the early 60s with a kind of a brief time out in the late 70s, early 80s. The doctor's coming back. Like that's, that's happening. That's there's no doctor at the end of whatever will be the last special or however this iteration plays out, there will be a regeneration moment. Who would you like to see as the next doctor? Well, you, of course. No, no, no. Come on. Seriously. You, you have a deep, you have a deep knowledge. Uh, of all Tom Hardy. I'd love to see Tom Hardy as Dr. Who. That would be a lot of money. I'd love it. Just like Mono Sabellic Dr. Who. Like, you know that's not going to happen. I just I, you asked me who I'd like to see. What I would like that? to see um honestly, I think that, that now that one glass ceiling has been broken, one barrier, I want to see more barriers broken. I'd like to see a South Asian Doctor Who. I'd like to see uh, a black Doctor Who. I'd like to see an Asian Doctor Who. I Doctor Who is a and 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 a lot of people, a lot of people talk about inclusion because they feel it's a nice thing to say, and they want they want brownie points from all the right people. They want to you know to get their thumbs up. But honestly, mine is mine is I also want to get the right the thumbs up from people because I think that that freedom, liberation, and justice is real. But I also think Doctor Who is a global franchise, and do the Doctor should reflect that. Um, so like. Morrissey and the Smiths are huge uh, among many people, including the, the Latinx community. I want to see that with the doctor, maybe a Latinx doctor who I want to, I want to see that open up. We're, we're, that discussion is already kind of germinating around James Bond and who the next Bond could be. Clearly yeah. people have talked about Idris like forever um, mm -hmm. and others. So yeah, I, I think, I hope that, I hope BBC and I'm, I'm probably they'll get a little bit of, a little bit of input from AMC because Obviously, the American broadcast of this is now a huge deal as well, and I, I hope they really um, they they open up their uh, their aperture and really think about what could be here. Now, speaking of which, Suicide Squad, we have a special guest, hot off the pr London premiere of Suicide Squad, less than twenty, well, maybe just over twenty four hours ago. Um, Anthony, will you roll out the red carpet, please? Yes, we have with us today the producer. Uh, the Suicide Squad, and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, and he, they're involving him in a lot of DC films, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, Peter Safran. Th how are you? Well, oh, great. Good to see you guys. Hey, man. Nice to see you. Yes. 
Now, listen, well, nice to hear you, rather. Now, listen, we know you just got off a plane. You're just back in Atlanta from London, from the Suicide Squad premiere there, which, of course, will be debuting um, just a few days on HBO Max and in theaters everywhere. Um, millions of things we're going to talk about. Um, you're working on, you know, yet more Shazam and Aquaman 2, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to clear up something here with Anthony because he doesn't believe me. Sure. Idris Elba is just a movie star to finance his DJ career. This That's is exactly right. I also want to add, he's a, I can't, I'm not going to swear on the podcast, but you can fill in the word, great blank DJ. I've learned from personal experience. But Peter, I would like you to back me up on this. You, you are 100% correct. Uh, the, the acting is completely part-time work. The DJing is his full-time job. And when we were negotiating his deal for Suicide Squad, he was dying to do the movie, but he had already committed to a block of shows in Ibiza during our shooting wow. at the beginning of our shoot. So every Thursday for six weeks, we released him on Thursday night. He flew to Ibiza, did his shows on the weekend, flew back Sunday, worked for us Monday. Six oh my God. Row, and he would not have done the Suicide Squad if we had insisted on uh, him <laughs> his gig in Ibiza. So it is truly his number one priority. See, I think I think he puts that. Thank you, by the way, my friend, for yes. for backing up because clearly Anthony thought I was completely full of it. <laughs> um, but I will all, like that is. I remember reading once years ago that Sean Connery had a, a like a thing in his contract that his character always had to be a person with literary ambitions or a deep appreciation of literature, and that was because Sir Sean because the way he was raised in a very working class Scottish family didn't have the benefits of higher education. Obviously he was sent to kind of the equivalent of a finishing school to play Bond later in life. Um, and he always was a little, you know, he wanted to make sure people were aware of the power of books. So that I'm, was the thing. I also sure. hear, by the way, he had a thing in his contract that he was only allowed to be X number of miles from a golf course at any time as well. So I, I believe the latter. I'm not sure I saw that in all the, you know, in, in, in the man who would be king, I'm not sure I saw the literary aspirations of that. You know what? You think you don't, but rewatch The Rock and you will find it there. I believe there is a fellow or a Tennyson kind of quote, like boom, just kind of dropped on you out of nowhere. When, when I go back through my uh, Nick Cage movies of the 90s, I will definitely look for that. So my friend, that is a film festival I would go to every night. Do not get me wrong. You can face off me and you can rock me up, but I would never, I ne when those two films show up when I turn on the TV, I'm, I'm stuck. I ain't moving. No now way. I know everything I need to know about you, Dominic. Yeah, I, I always like to share. Now, Peter, give us a sense. Like, obviously you come, just guys, you guys came off the premiere. I, there's a million things we can talk about with Suicide Squad and everything else, but I want to get a sense and give our listeners a sense. How does a producer juggle all these big projects? I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like another Shazam and another Aquaman are kind of an afterthought. You know what I mean? Sure. You know, I mean, listen, the, the, the Shazam and Aquaman, you know, the, the sequels to, you know, to the, to the first successful films in each of the franchises, um, you know, the, we, we'd been in development on those for a while. Suicide Squad was a much more opportunistic uh, opportunity. It just, it, it, it came along because uh, truly the, Monday after James Gunn was fired by Marvel on the Friday or the Thursday before, um, I, I, I ran into Toby Emmerich at the Warner Brothers gym. Who knew that working out could be so good for my career, not just my health. But, <laughs> uh, but I ran into him there and he said, hey, tell James that we love him. We want to do, if, 
we love James. Whatever he wants to do, we want to do here, whether it's DC or otherwise, we want to work with him. And so I went to James and I said, you know, I, I talked about a couple different properties, but, but I really pitched him hard on the Suicide Squad because I thought that nobody puts together a disparate group of renegades and sends them on a mission better than James Gunn. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie yet, but- I did, uh, last night. Well, it was great. Well, so so I, I, think, I think he, uh, you know, he bears out that, uh, that statement that he is the best at that. I, I will admit, I have seen it too. I will tell you this. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna give the world's shortest review. Down, dirty, and delightful. That's my well, Suicide Squad review. You throw that up on any HBO poster you want, HBO Max poster you want. Yeah, so, but, but in answer to your question about how to juggle them, I mean, listen, you know, the first of a franchise is in some ways the hardest because you are, you are, you're creating the wheel each time, right? So, you know, with, with the first Aquaman, with James Wan and with David Sandberg on Shazam, you know, you really, you really are creating every element of what that is going to be from, from soup to nuts. The second one, you know, listen, with James and with, uh, and with Sandberg, none of us were interested in making sequels to those movies if they were not going to be worthy successors to the kind of beloved first film. So, you know, again, we'd spent a lot of time working on those. They were getting ready to go, um, you know, and, and they were kind of on their path. Suicide Squad, you know, came along, you know, uh, as I said, opportunistically. Um, and, uh, you know, when you work with great filmmakers like, like Sandberg and like James Wan and like James Gunn, um, I'll tell you, you know, your biggest job is just finding a way to get their vision onto the screen. And, uh, you know, the studio is incredibly uh, generous with giving filmmakers like that a lot of freedom. And so uh, it really, it, it has not been that hard to, honestly, to juggle those three pictures. And because I'm pretty close to all three filmmakers, we're really able to find a way to make it work. You know, one thing that, one thing that interests me, especially about, and I want to talk about I always want to call him Captain Marvel, but it, you know Shazam is the title about Shazam and about the uh, the King of the Sea is you know I, I felt like no disrespect to Warner, but I mean look the, the DC Marvel battle is is superpowers it, it's a it's a, a caped cold war so to speak, but it's it's they were not the front burners so to speak, no. you know? and yet they 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 really generated the most heat in many ways. Well, you know, I think I, I think that James Wan, you know, really was drawn to what Aquaman is about. Aquaman's an outsider. Uh, you know, he's a guy that never feels like he belongs. And I think James Wan, to some degree, as a, you know, Malaysian, Chinese, Australian guy coming to the States to make movies, I think he also didn't necessarily feel like he belonged. And I think he, you know, that that Aquaman story really resonated for him. And, and he also really wanted to take a property that was kind of the you know, it was the, 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 the butt of the joke and he wanted to turn it on its ear. And once you cast Jason Momoa in that, nobody's making fun of Aquaman. And, you know, listen, he turned a property that was, as you say, a secondary or tertiary property into the highest grossing DC movie of all time. And, you know, that was really, uh, you know, James's vision from, uh, you know, right, right from the get-go. And Sandberg, you know, the same thing. He was drawn to that incredible family story of Shazam. The idea that family is, about blood. I mean, it's about bond, not about blood. And yeah. it's, it's kind of a beautiful foster family story. And he wanted to anchor it in those 1980s movies of, you know, Goonies and Ghostbusters and Big and Gremlins, uh, which is a very, you know, the eye of the needle is very small to, to thread there, but Sandberg did it absolutely perfectly. 
I like the Ghostbusters reference. I'm not going to give this away, but if you're a Ghostbusters fan, which I am a massive Ghostbusters fan, Suicide Squad will deliver a little bit for you. There's, well, you know, listen, I think we can actually mention it because the fact is they put a fucking giant pink star of Starburst in Leicester Square last night yeah, for the yeah. premiere. So, you know, we're not we're not hiding the fact that uh, that Starro is one of the, the prime adversaries of the Suicide Squad in this movie. All right. All right. Well, you put, look, you know what? But nobody, no, nobody pays attention to what happens over in the UK, Peter. Come on. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Brexit that stuff, my friend. You Brexit out. <laughs> How did the whole thing with Starro come to be as the enemy? I mean, it's very fun. It's trippy. Listen, very trippy. Listen, James Gunn, you know, we, we he talked about, about a bunch of different DC properties, thought about them, went off, you know, noodled around. And he called me back and he said, I got an idea for Suicide Squad but this is the only way I want to make it. It's a 1960s war caper film. And this is what I want it to be. And he pitches me the story. I said, it, it, it is completely bonkers, bananas, crazy, but perfect and perfect for you. We pitched it to Toby Emmerich and Walter Hamada and um, Chantal at, uh, at DC. And what he pitched to them that day, September 23rd, 2018, is exactly the movie that we made and delivered. There, it did not change one iota, literally, to the characters involved, who died, uh, who the adversaries were. Nothing changed. James knew exactly the movie that he wanted to make, and that is the movie that he delivered. And I think that is why people have responded so beautifully to it, both critics and audiences alike. It is, a, if you ever wonder what it's like to be inside the head of James Gunn, this movie answers that question for you because it is the unfiltered, vision of what he wanted to do it's exactly his movie so Stara was always there and you know we sat in toby's office then he says oh and a 150 foot pink starfish is going to be battling at some point the suicide squad nobody batted an eye because you know with a guy like james gunn you really you trust his instincts he's a he's a fanboy first and foremost he's incredibly knowledgeable about uh the dc comics and the marvel comics obviously too but you know, he knows what he as an audience member would want to see, and that's what he delivers. I have to ask, Peter, I have to ask you this, and, and you, you brought it up when we started. Obviously, James hit a wall, to put it mildly, fell into a ditch, let's be honest, sure. uh, with what happened, with those old tweets and what have you that got resurrected, yep. some taken completely out of context, sure. many of which he himself said were, were juvenile at the time. Sure. You can't be, I mean, you know, you, 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 you look at the bottom line financially and otherwise too. Does, how, you know, it's very rare that someone goes through that and then comes out the other side. How, well, why do you think that happened here? Well, I think, I think that people felt that it was, a, it was an overreaction from Disney and Marvel. And I think ultimately Disney and Marvel felt that it was an overreaction from Disney and Marvel because not that long after he's signed on to Suicide Squad. And by the way, the two are not related. Yeah, but yeah. not long after he signed on to do it, they, you know, reversed their decision and they invited him to come back and finish his trilogy. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, people realize that he was maybe caught up in forces that were much bigger than he was and beyond his control. And the fact that he had, um, you know, both apologized for many years before those tweets and, um, and also had lived, you know, a pretty exemplary life since his apology for it. Um, you know, listen, it was a terrible thing when it happened, but, you know, Marvel's 
uh, mistake turned out to be a giant benefit for DC and Warner Brothers. Um, and, and I just love the fact that James is showing that you can work at DC, you can work at Marvel, and, uh, you know, it's not a problem. You know, these are all of us in this world love comic books, love these stories, love these characters. And, you know, that which unites fans of Marvel and DC is much greater than that which divides us. So I, I love that James can kind of be the poster child for uh, the ability to go back and forth between the, uh, the the biggest of the companies. To use my Cold War analogy of DC and Marvel before, I think you just became Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I applaud their success over at uh, the other company because, you know, whenever superhero stuff is done well and differently and succeeds with the audience and is embraced by the audience, it just builds the audience for superhero stuff in general. But you have to keep, they, they keep raising the bar and you have to keep meeting that new standard. So, you know, I love the fact that DC truly will let each property have the right tone for that particular character. So you can have the taxi driver nature of the Joker. You can have, you know, big of Shazam. You can have the Shakespearean, you know, epic of, uh, of Aquaman. You know, there's, they let you do all that. You can have the war caper of Suicide Squad. Um, but I think that they're, you know, the, the, the Mar Marvel and DC keep raising the bar on each other and they, they each keep uh, rising to the challenge. So in terms of the title, tell us about the title. Why wasn't it called Suicide Squad 2? Or... It would have been a misnomer because it's not a sequel. You know, listen, is it a total reboot? No. Is it a sequel? No, certainly not. Um, we always just looked at it as, this is the definitive Suicide Squad through the lens of James Gunn. It's the vision of James Gunn for the Suicide Squad. And it goes back to the John Ostrander run of the comics. And it's, you know, very true to that tone and feel and Dirty Dozen vibe of it. Um, and so we, we certainly didn't want it to in any way appear to be a sequel because it's not. Um, and, uh, you know, we wanted to distinguish James's vision for it from anything that had come before. What was his take where Harley Quinn should go after after Suicide Squad and Birds of Prey? What how what was well, the next listen, level for her? Everybody loves Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, but James went back to he really went back to the comic books. He went back to the Ostrander vibe for her, you know, the kind of you know, crazy lunatic that Harley Quinn is. Even, by the way, back to the, you know, the, the, the red and black for her hair, which is, you know, you know, the fans have been loving that because, you know, they, that, that's, that's what she had in that run. Um, I, do, I do think you guys, I have to say, you know, and people will have not seen this when the, when the podcast drops, um, but when I have, well, I, I mean, I gather they won't have seen it because it won't be out yet officially, but um, you guys, there's a lot of fan service in the Suicide Squad. There is. There is, there is because James truly loves those comic books. Like he grew up on them in a huge way. They were very influential in, in how he, you know, saw the world. Um, and, you know, he really, he loved them. And so he, you know, we had John Ostrander on set, you know, he's got a small role in the, uh, in the film, as you guys know. And, um, you know, there's just, a, there's a certain reverence that, that James brings to it. So there is a lot for the comic book fan and there's a lot for people that have never seen or read the comic books ever. It's just a great, it's a great action film with what I think is incredible heart. I mean, James is, you know, superpower is getting you to feel emotions for 
in Guardians of the Galaxy, a, a, a monosyllabic tree or a raccoon. In this one, with King Shark, with Sebastian the Rat, the way he can even weasel, he's able to imbue these these uh, these characters with so much heart. Um, you know that the audience is really along for the ride. You know, you just you just want to spend time with these characters, no matter what they're doing. Peter, I want to ask you something about spending time. Um, as, as you know, I, I, one of the things I do at Deadline is I, I write our, our, our legal, um, our le I had our legal coverage. Sure. You know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard have had some legal issues over, over the years. This is not really? the time to discuss those. Really? But you might have heard. Donna. No, no I, but thank you for letting me know. The internet, my friend, it will help I, you out. I got to read but, Deadline more closely, but okay, go ahead. Clearly. Yes. But one of the things that came out a number of times is there were a number of, of, of supporters of Johnny's who were petitioning to not have Amber back in Aquaman, who were making moves to that. Um, clearly unsuccessful. Yes. But I wanted to get, I've always wanted to ask, like, from, from your point of view, you know, how did that impact upon you? You know, I, I don't think that we're ever going to react to, honestly, to just pure fan pressure because, you know, you know, I think you, you got to do what you feel is best for the movie. And, you know, we felt Jay, we felt that if it's James Wan and Jason Momoa, it should be Amber Heard. And that's, that's really what it was. So, I mean, listen, you know, one is not unaware of what's going on in the, you know, uh, Twitterverse. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you have to react to it or take it as gospel or, you know, or accede to their wishes. Um, you know, you have to do what you feel is right for, for the film. And that's, that's really where we landed on it, truthfully. Yeah. Um, so Warner Brothers doubled down on Gunn's version of Suicide Squad. You've got a spinoff series, The Peacemaker, coming up. Tell us about how that came. Yeah, which we should say, Peter, Peter's one of the main, the main man behind that as well. I think and, James Gunn is the main man behind it. But yes, you know, I'll tell you, it came about, you know, um, it came about pretty clearly. You know, COVID was happening, locked down, everybody was locked down. We were in post-production on Suicide Squad and James Gunn had a window between delivering Suicide Squad and starting to prep Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And uh, I said to him, if you could take one of these characters and create an eight episode HBO Max series, would you want to do that? And who would it be for? And unhesitatingly, he said, it's Peacemaker and yes. I want to do it. And that was really all it took. And I'll tell you, the guys at, at HBO Max were, you know, and WBTV and Toby Emmerich and Ann Sarnoff, everybody embraced the idea immediately because they love the idea of, you know, getting the filmmaker behind the big franchise tentpole movie to also write all eight episodes and direct, in this case, five of the eight. Um, wow. You know, of a spin-off series. That's, I mean, you never get that. You know, characters are spun off, but you never get the central creative force behind the movie also being the central creative force, uh, both, you know, um, you know, as writer and director on a series. So I'll tell you, we, we went to them and said, you know, we would have to do it in this window of time. And, um, you know, do you want to do it? And there was no hesitation on their part. They said, yes, James wrote all eight while, you know, we were... Uh, still in quarantine. And, uh, you know, we all went up to Canada in uh, December and we've now wrapped the show and we're, uh, we're delivering it and it comes out in, in January. And I will tell you, you know, cause you guys have seen the movie, there is so much more to explore with the Peacemaker character. And John Cena is the consummate professional. He is 
a wonderful actor and he goes, you know, he, he brings some extraordinary depth to the series. And he is the funniest guy around. Yeah. His improv is spectacular, almost none of which makes it into the movie, but it is so damn funny and such a pleasure to be around him that there was really no question he was the guy we should create a, a, a show around. He's the man who kills for peace. Peter, we, we really thank you for being with us. I have one last question for you. You know, earlier today, Anthony and I were talking about uh, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney for Black Widow. Specifically, Scarlett is looking at the fact that this was put on Disney Plus and she's making claims and allegations, same thing, pardon me for my, my redundancy there, about her compensation out of that. The Suicide Squad is coming out in theaters, but also as part of the, the overall strategy, it is also gonna debut on HBO Max the same day. Unlike Disney Plus, no extra cost, pal. You got an HBO Max subscription, you're watching it. From your point of view, you know, you're a seasoned producer, buddy. This isn't going to affect Aquaman 2 or Shazam 2, but how does this feel for you? You know, what, I think when they first proposed it, it felt strange because, you know, everybody was so concerned about what it would do to the ultimate box office uh, on your film. Um, and, you know, perhaps the way in which it was announced wasn't the most elegant, but uh, looking where we stand today, um, I think, uh, you know, I feel like Warner Brothers treated everybody pretty fairly and, um, you know, in a world where COVID is still very much present, um, you know, and I love the idea that more people are going to see our movie than would see it if we just had it in theaters today. So would I want it to be the same for Aquaman or for Shazam 2? No, I wouldn't, because I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, COVID is, is, is eradicated or at least under control by then. But currently, as we look at releasing this week in, U in the UK and next week in US and most of the territories around the world, um, I don't think it's a bad thing. And, you know, I know that people are going to come out. This is a movie that merits being seen on the biggest screen possible. It was shot on IMAX cameras. You should see it on a giant fucking screen. Excuse my language. And it's a uh, podcast, brother. You can say what you like. Yeah. So, so, I, so I think you should see it on the biggest screen possible. But for those that can't or don't feel safe doing it, you know, to be able to still watch it and be part of the conversation that I know this movie will engender. I love it. I, I'm, I'm glad that more people are going to see it than not. And I also think, uh, you know, it, it continues to build the Peacemaker audience, which is also on HBO Max. So it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, wow, that was so professionally deft. I feel like we just need to stop. Uh, well, I'm going to steal, I'm going to steal the last question. Sure. Um, can you tease for us, Peter, anything on Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom or Shazam Fury of the Gods? Any, any castings that haven't been out there? Um, no, I think because you guys know about, you know, adding, uh, you know, uh, Helen Mirren and uh, Lucy Liu and Rachel Ziegler um, on Shazam. Oh, an awesome trio, by the way. Love them. Lo I mean, they are absolutely breathtakingly great together. Um, and uh, so I think you're I think you're, you're pretty much up to speed on all the casting. You know, I would say that, you know, on both films and I, you know, I mentioned it earlier, neither filmmaker was interested in making a sequel if they didn't feel like it was going to surpass the one before, both in terms of, you know, audience satisfaction and also in every regard commercially and critically. And I feel like in both cases, we have unbelievable screenplays from David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick on on uh, uh, on Aquaman and Henry Gayden on um, Shazam that we love. Like, we just think they're great. And and honestly, we can't wait to bring them to, you know, uh, to the world. Uh, and, and, and I think that in neither case, 
are they going to feel like cynical cash grabs? I think they both are very different from the movies that precede them and both incredibly satisfying. Um, I love in Aquaman that we go to a whole new range of environments, both above and below the surface of the ocean that are breathtaking. The, the way James has designed them with, you know, Bill Bresky, our production designer and, uh, you know, the, the, the Viz Dev guys, it's just breathtaking. I, I just came as a, you know, from London, from the set there and you walk around the war room and you cannot believe the scale and scope of what we're doing with that movie. So anyway, I, I, I really look forward to being able to talk to you guys a lot more about it, uh, you know, next year uh, for Aquaman and the following year for, for Shazam. Well, Peter, we'd love to have you back on the podcast or in any time. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, really a pleasure. Great, great chatting with you guys. Well, with that, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you to our wonderful producers, Tom and David, for everyone for doing this. It's been a crazy week in the Hero Nation. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Deadline Podcast, Hero Nation. Now, we thank you for listening to it on Deadline, but make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an edition of Anthony and I shooting our mouths off about people in capes and time machines. And of course, you can find all of our breaking news coverage of TV, film, business, and everything affecting our industry at Deadline.com. Thank you very much. Bye.